Hi there. My name is Joe. Uh, I haven't yet listened to your show. Oh, thanks a lot, Joe. But if your show is about what makes uh, the 413 great, I wanted to urge you to visit a wonderful place in Southwick, Massachusetts called Bar Shop. It is in the former Nora's restaurant. And oh boy, is it a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful oasis uh, on Lake Congamon, serving craft cocktails, selling art, kitchen goodies, and run by two of the most uh, incredible women you will ever meet. So again, my name is Joe, and I wanted to urge you to visit Bar Shop in Southwick, Massachusetts. Thanks for the tip, Joe. Hopefully we'll get a chance to check out Bar Shop soon, and hopefully you'll enjoy the show when you eventually listen. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. You can leave us a voicemail anytime at 800-639-9120 or a text or email us at thefab413 at nepm.org. Speaking of drinking at the uh, bar shop, listeners of the Fab 413 can get a 15% discount to tomorrow's NEPM wine and food lovers wine tasting at MGM. You can go to our podcast page and find the secret speakeasy code. Or I'll just tell you right now that it's Fab 413 wine, all one word. Way to go. Uh, Look, we want people to come and drink with us. That's true. Enter that while getting your ticket to come taste with us tomorrow. Coming up. Our Tanglewood correspondent, Boston Pops conductor Keith Lockhart. And Shape Note singing live in studio with Tim Erickson and some sacred harp singers. But first... It's Thursday. That's when we do our McGoverning with McGovern. With U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts, Worcester's own Jim McGovern, the ranking member of the Rules Committee. And it's strange things afoot in the House of Representatives over the past week, and we'll get to that uh, in just a little bit. But... Since all politics is local, let's start locally. You, Congressman McGovern and Senator Markey, have reintroduced a bill to protect the Deerfield River. It was first introduced last Congress, and it would commission a study of the Deerfield River in southern Vermont and western Mass with the aim of incorporating it into the national wild and scenic river system. Why is this something that you wanted to introduce, reintroduce, and what would it mean for the river? Well, what it means is that there will be more federal resources available to maintain the river, to build on some of the recreational activities. In essence, it helps a lot of the local communities that are along the river economically. It makes it more of a destination point. And, um, you know, it prioritizes it as a waterway that we want to protect and maintain and, and enhance. Does making it a destination point, does that ultimately benefit the river or does that potentially cause more detriment to the river? No, I think I think I think it benefits the river. I mean, it's not a destination point to do things that are going to destroy the river. But you know, whether it's fishing or recreation or enhancements of walking paths along the river, all those kinds of things, I think are are, are important and are desirable. They don't do any damage uh, environmentally, and you know, much of again what we want to see happen in terms of you know whether it's cleanup or other enhancements are things designed, you know, not to exploit the river, but to protect it and to make sure that it is there uh, forever and ever and ever in the condition we want it to be in. I've learned from Connecticut River Conservancy that, you know, when there's a fish species that people love to go fishing for, that fish ultimately gets better protected despite the fact that you're going fishing for it because people care about it. In the same way, if you have a a recreational relationship with the river, you want to make sure uh, you're taking care of it. So this could be uh, big news for the Deerfield River in southern Vermont and part of the Connecticut River watershed area. We got a question from John Hodrigan in Pelham, 
who wants to know about Medicare. He says, what actions are you taking, Congressman, to guarantee that we become a country that provides single payer health care? Now, President Biden's going to unveil his budget today. He's proposing a tax increase to help bolster Medicare, a tax increase on the wealthiest. Uh, what's your take on either the president's proposed budget and or how that's going to relate to uh, single payer or Medicare? Well, one is we need to do a couple of things. One is we need to do what the president is suggesting because we need to make sure that Medicare is solvent for ever and ever and ever. That's number one. Number two, um, you know, I'm somebody who does support a single-payer health care plan. As chairman of the Rules Committee, I did the first ever hearing on Medicare for All. I'm really proud of that hearing. It was That was a, a substantive hearing, but it, I think it helped kind of educate people about the benefits of a single-payer plan, of Medicare for All in this case. And it also... Um, made it clear to people that this is not some kind of radical idea. This is actually something that is in the benefit of all of our citizens. Look, we have a Republican-controlled House right now um, who, are, who are back on the path of trying to repeal Obamacare. You know, we're trying to do damage control. But my hope is we get a working majority in the House again, and hopefully in the Senate, and uh, you know, be able to work with you know a Democratic president um, who believes that health care is the fundamental right, and we ought to build on what we have and get to a system like Medicare for All. Jill Kaufman, who's part of the NEPM News Department here and has sort of become the uh, mythical figure of the fabulous 413 show, uh, wants to know, she says Governor Moore Healy has taken some flack for backtracking in some ways on her promise to follow the state's public records law, even though it doesn't technically apply to the governor's office currently. Congress is also exempt from the Federal Freedom of Information Act. Would you support changing that? And would you agree to, while it's not changed, voluntarily have your office follow FOIA or Freedom of Information Act public requests? Yeah, generally, I'm fine with that. I guess the issue is, I mean, sometimes people send us things that are very personal and confidential that, you know, they we deal with casework that, you know, involves people's personal challenges and issues, which I don't think they would want, they would be writing to us for help if they thought that those things could be made public. But I mean, I, I think if we could figure out a, you know, a standard to protect people's privacy, I'm generally for as much transparency and openness as possible. As evidenced by this conversation weekly, anybody can literally email any question and I will ask it as long as it yeah, pertains yeah. to what actually Congressman McGovern does. We get a lot of questions that are not understanding the difference between what the state is in control of and what the federal government is in control of. So usually I just throw those out. But other than, other than that, you've been very open yeah. in answering all these questions for the years that we've done this prior to. Yeah, on, no, and yeah. Uh, yeah, and on the federal level in general, I mean, you can request documents and, you know, and information from agencies. But again, a lot of the work that, that we end up doing... Um, some of it, you know, is, is very, very sensitive and very personal to individuals who I represent. So, I, you know, maybe we could come to some sort of, uh, of an agreement where, where the line is. Speaking with U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern, McGovern,ing with McGovern, the congressman from the Second Congressional District of Massachusetts, the House of Representatives has had an interesting week. Tucker Carlson has received footage from Speaker McCarthy from January sixth, two thousand one. That footage was edited in a specific way where Tucker Carlson is now putting the narrative out there that these were not rioters, these were not domestic terrorists, these were not people trying to commit any sort of treason or coup, that these were tourists. A small percentage of them were hooligans. They committed vandalism. But the overwhelming majority weren't. They were peaceful, they were orderly and meek. These were not insurrectionists, they were sightseers. House Speaker McCarthy has distanced himself to some degree from what Tucker Carlson has put on Fox News. You were there on January 6, 2001. Yeah. You called into my show the very next morning. It was chilling to hear how shaken up you were that next morning. What is your assessment of 
both, I guess, in a, a full disclosure sense, all this footage has been released to Tucker Carlson and how Fox News has been handling it and how the speaker has been handling how Fox News has been handling it. Yeah, I, I spoke about this yesterday on the House floor. Um, to me, it is offensive. It's clear that there's an element of the Republican Party that wants to keep the big lie going, that somehow Donald Trump won the election, that the people who attacked the Capitol on January 6th were, were tourists, were there peacefully. I was there. I was there. I was in the chair. I took over for Speaker Pelosi. I had to evacuate the House floor. I came face to face with that mob when I went to the Speaker's lobby. That's where they used their fists to to break the glass to get at us. That's when the police shot this woman, Ashley Babbitt. So I saw the, the destruction that they caused. I talked to staffers who were traumatized, people who who left working in the Capitol because they didn't want to be there anymore. After that, um, I mean, these people came uh, with the intent to hurt people, to kill people. 140 Capitol Police officers, 140 were injured. Some died as a result of what happened that day. So when, when I hear Tucker Carlson, um, who's a political hack, say that this was a, a not a big deal, he wasn't there. I was there. And it really is it, it, it's infuriating. And I really I am I'm furious, not for me, but for all the other people that were there that day. Uh, including our Capitol Hill police officers. And it just, it's a disgusting, kind of awful, terrible road to go down. But that's, you know, Speaker McCarthy. I mean, he is complicit in this. He gave him all the footage exclusively, so creates the impression, oh, I got the whole story, and then he releases something that looks like, you know, it doesn't show the people breaking the windows to get into the Capitol. I mean, it's like they're all walking around like, like no big deal, and that—that that is footage that can be seen elsewhere. You can see the footage yeah. where the glass is broken yeah. in the Capitol uh, right before Ashley Babbitt is sadly killed. But you can see you in the background yeah. through that window. When you see the Speaker of the House deliberately engage in activities to promote this big lie, it, it really—it's—it's it's disgusting. And by the way, you could also go back and listen to his immediate reaction of what happened that day when he basically called Donald Trump, he said so, and screamed at him about, you know, call these people off. This, this cannot be tolerated. The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. He should have immediately denounced the mob when he saw what was unfolding. These facts require immediate action by President Trump. Accept his share of responsibility. Quell the brewing unrest and ensure President-elect Biden is able to successfully begin his term. And then a few days later, he went down to Mar-a-Lago on bended knee and kissed his ring and said, you're beautiful. But the bottom line is that moment when this was happening, he, he was witness to that. And he was so upset that he called Donald Trump at the time. But now he thinks this political advantage in promoting this big lie. This is really dangerous. You know, you look, you look through world history, you know, you, you, you see demagogues do this kind of stuff. They create these false narratives to try to confuse people basically to enhance your own political power. This is a dangerous kind of road to go down, and it increases the likelihood that you'll have another January 6th. So the Speaker McCarthy and Tony McGovern going on Tucker Carlson, these guys are, uh, this is disgusting. And I also read on the floor yesterday Tucker Carlson's emails uh, that he was sending to colleagues about how, you know, he thought that... uh, these people you know, who were saying the election was stolen or, you know, were, were full of it. On November 21st, 2020, Carlson said in private text that lies about voter fraud were, and I quote, shockingly reckless and called the very conspiracy theories he was promoting on the air as insane and absurd to his colleagues. 
He called those propagating the big lie, and I quote again, dangerous as hell. But instead of owning up to the truth, he went on TV, and with zero respect for his viewers, and for the people of this country, zero respect for the truth, zero respect for our democracy, he sold those dangerous lies to the American people. He should be ashamed. And Speaker McCarthy's disgraceful decision to help him spread these lies will forever be a stain on this institution. I'm all for news, and I'm all for news analysis, but this is just propaganda, and it's very, very dangerous for our country. Congressman McGovern, one thing that both of us care very deeply about is making sure uh, our neighbors have enough to eat. Pandemic-era SNAP benefits have ended. Each family will receive about $151 less per month in SNAP benefits. And meanwhile, you've introduced legislation to permanently increase federal reimbursement for school meals to help address those funding changes. It's the Healthy Meals Help Kids Learn Act. It would permanently increase the federal reimbursement. Any chance of this passing in this Congress? Any bipartisan thought that uh, schools might be a good place to make sure that kids have yeah. enough to eat? Well, I'm hoping so. I've talked to a number of Republicans who are in general supportive, but they don't want to be the first Republican to go on this bill. But we need to set the groundwork to uh, increasing the reimbursement for uh, the meals we provide our kids in schools. Uh, and by doing that, then you, you can have better choices and we can rely more on local farmers for the food that we serve our kids. So that is all really important. I'm grateful that Governor Healy is going to work with the legislature to try to provide some emergency assistance because of the snap cuts to help provide people a little bit of relief so that it's not a big cliff and all of a sudden they you know, find themselves at a substantially lower snap uh, uh, reimbursement amount. But there's a lot that we still need to do. And uh, I'm pressing the Biden administration right now to expand community eligibility to cover uh, with federal money more school meals in general. You know, right now they will provide full reimbursement for schools where 40 percent of the school kids qualify for free reduced breakfast or lunch. We're trying to get them to go down to 25 percent so they can cover more schools in Massachusetts and across the country. And then we need the state legislature to then do the rest. Mm-hmm. so that we, we have a, an agreement here that every school meal is free and universal and healthy and nutritious for all of our kids. So those are some of the things that we're, you know, we're focused on. But look, uh, the SNAP reimbursement never was adequate, even with all these add-ons. The average SNAP benefit before Biden became president was about $1.40 per person per meal. With all the add-ons and with the emergency monies from the pandemic, it went up to about two forty-five. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, come on, you can't buy a cup of coffee for that. So we ought to have a real discussion on what we need to provide to make sure that people have access to good, healthy, nutritious food. Meanwhile, I am proud dad, as my son Enzo is going to Washington, D.C. to volunteer at Food and Friends and Martha's Table and taking a a tour of your office, Congressman, which isn't just available to the sons of radio hosts, is a benefit to all your constituents, (laughs) right? You get you through your office. You can take a tour of the Capitol for free. Well, when's he coming? He's coming. He leaves this weekend. He'll be there next week. Well, I, I I think next week I'll be in Massachusetts, unfortunately, oh. but I will I will make sure that uh, <laughs> that he is that he gets you know the red carpet treatment. I mean, and you know anybody we love people when they come to Washington to stop by the office, and you know happy to to provide tours. I gave a tour yesterday uh, to uh, people from the tow truck industry in Massachusetts. That's great. Uh, so 
you know, uh, but it's uh, that's great. And and that he's going to be volunteering at uh, Marcus Table, which is an incredible uh, organization out here. is is just wonderful. So in any event, I, that's great. I'm really thrilled that he's doing that. You can take a tour, even if you're not a Belmonte, of the state capitol through <laughs> Congressman McGovern's office, and they will roll out the red carpet for you there, I'm sure, as well. And you can ask a question of Congressman Jim McGovern. Send an email anytime to fab413 at nepm.org, or you can even text a question, 800 800- 639-9120 and I'll ask it on your behalf next week. Thank you so much, Congressman. All the best. Be safe. Thanks. Coming up, we'll introduce you to our Tanglewood correspondent, Boston Pops conductor Keith Lockhart. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Tickets to this season at Tanglewood went on sale this morning at 10 a.m. The season opens on June 22nd at Tanglewood in Lenox Stockbridge, and it looks so good. And joining us here in the fabulous 413 is our Tanglewood correspondent, Boston Pops conductor Keith Lockhart. First question, Keith Lockhart, will you be our Tanglewood correspondent? We haven't really... Honored. This is the first I've heard of this. But, uh, <laughs> We've been telling everybody for a long time that you're going to be our Tanglewood correspondent. So. Sorry to spring it on you as a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> I, I am absolutely honored. I take on the responsibility uh, and uh, gladly. So it's great to talk to you guys. It's great to talk to you. Thank you I'll, for joining us. I'll say in full disclosure, when I uh, in your first year as uh, the conductor of the Boston Pops, I, I actually was, remember this too. <laughs> I was oh. well. I was at Great Woods at the time in Mansfield, Massachusetts, and the the Pops were playing there, and I got to meet you backstage, and I was over the moon excited as a young drummer in the concert band at my high school. Um, well, that's so cool. I, th- I, w- I was afraid you were going to say you weren't born yet. No, so no, was, no, 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 no. We're not, oh, no. no, we're not that, we're not that um, <laughs> young. But and we have a lot of classical musical fans here on NEPM. We air classical music from 9 a.m. until our show starts at 3, and all of them know this, I'm sure. But what is the difference between the Boston Pops, which you conduct, and the Boston Symphony Orchestra? Well, you know, they may not know that. Some some people within the Boston Symphony don't know that. It's, okay. it's a very Good to know. complicated as as simply as possible. They are we are all part of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. That's the parent corporation, and the Boston Pops uh, is made up about eighty five percent of members of the Boston Symphony. The other fifteen percent are regulars whom we use uh, from the Boston freelance community, and uh, together, uh, you know, we we fill the whole season both at Tanglewood and back here at Symphony Hall. So most of the difference is the rep we play and and when we play it. The Pops is most known, of course, for playing the holidays here in Symphony Hall and uh, during the spring pop season in in May and June leading up to the big July 4th concert. And then everybody, as you know, decamps to Tanglewood and we play some great music out in 413. It feels like band camp, Tanglewood. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, very high-end band camp. Yeah, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of like... Tanglewood is not just a concert venue. It is like a learning experience and they've got their own ensembles. Like what is is cool about having that? It's a complex like you talk about Tanglewood as a complex and how it affects the season. Well, Tanglewood is just such a nexus point for so much great art to happen in such a concentrated period of time. Uh, I don't think there's any place in the world where so much comes together at the same time. There's the Tanglewood Music Center, which is one of the country's premier educational opportunities for musicians who are on the brink of a career for very, very advanced students. Uh, The Festival of Contemporary Music, the uh, series of lectures and uh, discussions that takes place at the Tanglewood Learning Institute. 
constant recitals at Ozawa Hall, all the big concerts with the BSO and the Boston Pops uh, Under the Shed, uh, the popular artist series with people like James Taylor and Train and the Steve Miller Band this year. And it's just amazing how much I mean, you can't get away from the music there. It's uh, it's funny for those of us who do music all the time. Sometimes you wish there wasn't quite so much music for everybody else, though. I think it's a good thing. We're oh, it's, I mean, it's always like that. I walked into a coffee shop, oh, a few years ago, really needing time to myself, really not in a good mood. And the, directly in front of me in line is Emmanuel Axe, who's one of the most famous pianists in, in the world. And it's just like, come on, you know. I guess I have <laughs> but, to conduct you now. You know, I, guess, I, guess, I, guess we, I guess we have to talk music. That's what we talk. Well, we're happy to talk music with you. Uh, we don't know for sure. It's not been confirmed yet, but we think probably our uh, Tanglewood correspondent, Boston Pops conductor, Keith Lockhart. This is your 28th year leading the Pops. It makes you the second longest serving conductor since the Pops was founded in 1885, year after Arthur Fiedler. Uh, there, you're going to be conducting five Pops programs, uh, including a new symphonic arrangement of the Broadway musical Ragtime on July mm-hmm. 8th. Uh, as well as the Star Wars, the story and music. Uh, huge fan of that. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, where we'll call you Gilderoy Lockhart as opposed to Keith Lockhart. <laughs> um, tell me what you're excited about to bring, of, of what you're bringing to conduct at Tanglewood this season. No relation between me and Gilderoy, by the way, okay. just, to, just to make that clear. Uh, except that I like Kenneth Branagh. Uh, so, yeah, um, it's really exciting. I mean, uh, you, as you know, these uh, we, we're all coming back from a period of time when the performing arts were shuttered for a season and a half or so. And uh, to be back to really full swing, this is the most concerts uh, I've conducted at Tanglewood since, oh, I think, probably a couple of years before the pandemic. So it's really exciting to be back to those great audiences there. I think the thing I'm most excited about is uh, how we start an opening weekend. Uh, The Boston Symphony opens on July 7th, and we're there on July 8th with uh, Ragtime, the musical and concert. The show Ragtime is such an amazingly sprawling and and insightful and relevant uh, show because it deals with the difficulties of achieving the American dream and the way that uh, communities interact and conflict uh, in this country. Um, and we intended uh, this to be a big premiere in 2020. Well, guess what? Of course, that didn't <laughs> what happened? Uh, oh, I don't know. Did something happen in 2020? Where, 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 where were you? <laughs> so that was my, yeah, that was my exciting 25th anniversary season that wasn't. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but to be back with an incredible cast, uh, Alton Fitzgerald White and uh, it just uh, it's it's really a great, a very important moment, I think, in the Tanglewood music season. We're excited about that. Of course, doing film out there in Tanglewood uh, on a summer night is just an amazing thing. And bringing Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone there with the Esplanade Orchestra in the last weekend is also really exciting. <laughs> um, that actually keys into something I wanted to ask about presenting more popular songs or popular music in orchestral setting. Like what's fun about popularizing like orchestral music. It's called Pops for a reason. It is called Pops for a reason. (laughs) Well, I always, uh, you know, I always say that the Boston Pops is the orchestra for people who don't know they like orchestras and uh, to to I think what's most fun about it for those of us who really love uh, orchestral music, classical music or within this uh, this art form is 
bringing people who uh, are are not uh, the saved, if you will, bringing people <laughs> in who who are who would not say offhand, "Gee, I'd love to go hear an orchestra concert," and having them be blown away by the incredible emotional impact of of hearing. 80 people, 85 people all working together in, in beautiful harmony. And that's one of the things that, of course, I love about the music of my illustrious predecessor, John Williams, who will also be out of Tanglewood quite a bit this summer, is uh, that his music has reached millions of people who, without his music, probably would never have heard a great orchestra play great music. It really is phenomenal, and, and what a legend John Williams is, and that is an exciting part of what will happen in the Tanglewood season. Tickets went on sale this morning. You can buy them at the box office there at certain hours now. Uh, before we take a break, well, actually, after we take a break, we'll take a, a question from one of our listeners who voicemailed in a question for Keith Lockhart, who will be our Tanglewood correspondent for the duration of the season where the tickets went on sale. We'll be back in just a minute with Keith Lockhart. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on New England Public Media. We're back on the Fabulous 413. More with our Tanglewood correspondent, Boston Pops conductor Keith Lockhart, who's led the annual Pops appearances at Tanglewood. 43 tours to more than 150 cities, 38 states, four international tours to Japan and Korea. The Pops have made 79 television shows for the long-running television show Evening at the Pops. They've played at the Super Bowl, the NBA Finals, the Boston Red Sox ring ceremony goes on and on and on and we have a listener of the fabulous 413 maestro who wanted to ask you a question robert burke hello i have a question for keith lockhart uh in a big band there's different arrangement there are letters like when they rehearse they say let's take it from letter j or letter k or whatever whatever the letter is is that the same in classical music and and also like if your violin concerto was, is uh, rehearsing with the symphony, is there reference points like that in classical music as there is in jazz bands, or, you know, a big band? Thank you very much. That is a wonderfully specific question, Robert. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I will tell you that, yes, of course, when you're when you're dealing, especially with a, a large-scale work, I mean, a uh, uh, hour and a half long piece like a Mahler symphony, for instance, we need to have points of reference. Otherwise you'd be stuck with going back to the beginning, which was a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> so uh, there are rehearsal, usually there's some sort of rehearsal marking system. It's either letters, like let's take it from letter J or rehearsal numbers or measure numbers, which allow us to be much more specific. So can we go to the third movement and start around bar 357? Uh, some of these movements in a Mahler symphony have over a thousand measures in them. So, yeah, you need a little bit of uh, a sub place to find things. You know, the the trouble comes when you have mixed editions because some of these pieces have come out over the years in many different editions, and they have different rehearsal numbering systems. And you should check that before <laughs> rehearsal, or you have a very frustrating moment in rehearsal. It's like when they renumber the exits on the highway. You're like, oh, exactly. where do I get off? What's, yes. what's up with that, by the way? <laughs> it's, it's a it national initiative. Yeah, it's okay. Confusing at sure. First. Yes. <laughs> it kind of makes yes, but if for years and years you've said I'm going to get off at exit 5 and all of a sudden it's exit 78, right? Yep. That's uh, Yeah. Yes. It's our highway correspondent and uh, Tanglewood yes, exactly. correspondent. And how Boston. do we feel about daylight savings time? Oh, we were talking about this off the air. It's got we got to go, we got to we got to spring forward and leave it there. Just pick one and then it's exactly. fine. Yeah. Just like has been proposed for years. Let's let's right. spring forward in the on this part of the world and stay there. Yes. So the the pops are in 
are involved in the Tanglewood Parade, correct? Yes. Okay. Tanglewood on Parade, which I'm hoping you have the 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 date has mysteriously appeared off my desk. Oh, I believe Tanglewood it's. The, I, I do believe <laughs> that it is August eighth, but I'm excited about it in in that part because. Correct. You are playing Ravel's Bolero, which is one of my favorite pieces of music, even though it shows the sharp decline of his Alzheimer's. But um, <laughs> what are some of your pa- favorite pieces that you're bringing to Tanglewood or that you've done in this current season? Wow. Well, this current season, you know, is about to start in May. And a couple of things we're, we're proud about. We're doing a really cool Roots of Jazz program, which is uh, focusing on all the great trumpet players uh, throughout jazz history, starting with Louis Armstrong and going on up to Miles Davis and, and beyond. That's a really cool program. So if anybody's feeling like coming east on the pike, you should come in and hear us do that. Uh, Check your exit. On Parade, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tanglewood on Parade is always an amazing event because it brings so many people together under one roof and uh, everybody getting together and listening to the Boston Symphony, the Boston Pops, the Stars of Tomorrow with the Tanglewood Music Center Orchestra and everybody coming together for uh, the big, uh, the huge massed orchestra version of 1812 at the end. So so there is Bolero on the program. Uh, the Pops is playing uh, the Rimsky-Korsakov Capriccio Espanol, yes. uh, which is a really fun piece. <laughs> and of course, piece. it always ends with 1812. Right. Our New England Public Media classical music host, John Nowacki, wants to ask you, Keith Lockhart from the Boston Pops, as it's Women's History Month, what's the scene like, in your opinion, for women conductors these days, at, in your opinion, as a male? And in particular, <laughs> any women, and especially women of color, that you're excited about coming up? as conductors of orchestras. Wow. The, uh, well, the, you know, there's been obviously a a reckoning where we've thought very hard in classical music about how to better represent people who have been, you know, uh, whose voices have been silenced in, uh, in uh, classical music. And uh, certainly, uh, you know, and, and the uh, existence of a certain movie called, called Tar has certainly put the, the idea that, uh, you know, women can be on the podium into every the forefront of everybody's mind. Uh, to tell you the truth, I am, am not all that up on who is coming up these days, but there are many more faces being seen on the podium that uh, in big places, large orchestras that have not had the opportunities before. Um, I will say that uh, we are working with a couple of uh, amazing uh, women composers of color uh, whose voices are also uh, being paid attention to in a way that they may not have been before. I'm doing a wonderful piece by Erilyn Wallen, a um, British uh, female uh, black composer uh, called Mighty River, uh, which actually deals with uh, the cause of homelessness uh, in the UK. Hmm. And uh, I'm doing that in about two weeks. Now you reminded me, I've got to get back to studying. (laughs) And we we have a a wonderful young... uh, female uh, composer of color uh, who's uh, we're just about to announce, so I can't tell you who it is, uh, is going to get her first commission to write for the Boston Pops for uh, next season. Oh, that's excellent. That's awesome. And you have someone coming in for your contemporary series, too, whose piece I got to see on YouTube. That was absolutely fascinating. So, like, check out the contemporary series. Don't don't sleep on it. Real neat stuff comes in there, too. Are you rooting for Tara at the Oscars? (laughs) Well, anything that shines a better spotlight on on classical music, I'm a, I'm a fan of automatically. Was that a bitter spotlight or a better spotlight? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, not you know, it's not it's not a happy it's not a happy story. No, no. <laughs> 
We're speaking with Keith Lockhart, our new Tanglewood correspondent. Tanglewood tickets went on sale today. There is all sorts of popular artist series concerts that are extremely exciting. Robert Plant and Alison Krauss is one I'm particularly excited about. And Keith Lockhart will be leading five Boston Pops programs, including a new symphonic arrangement of the Broadway musical Ragtime. It's going to be so cool. On July 8th. <laughs> well, we're hoping, Maestro, that you'll join us uh, occasionally throughout the duration of the season as it opens up. We're going to come out to Tanglewood. We're going to do a piece on the actual trees of Tanglewood from there, not just the music. So you can uh, take a break from the music for a second. And, uh, so I have to talk about the trees instead? You don't, but we're going to go out there with the groundskeeper. So. <laughs> well, if you'll have me, I'd be glad to be back on and talk to you. I didn't know this was an audition, but I hope <laughs> you, you have, You're the first chair now. You have passed with flying colors. <laughs> Thank you so much, Keith Lockhart from the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And as I mentioned, tickets to Tanglewood are on sale right now. Coming up, a different type of musical ensemble, live shape note singing with Tim Erickson and folks from the Western Mass, Sacred Harp, community. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. The Western Massachusetts Sacred Harp Convention returns to the Northampton Center for the Arts at 33 Holly this Saturday and Sunday, March 11th and 12th. After a pan- pandemic hiatus, the free two-day gathering of shape note singers from far and wide is returning to Northampton and is hosted by the Western Massachusetts Sacred Harp community. Tim Erickson is a renowned ethnomusicologist as well as the leader of the band Cordelia's Dad, a solo artist, and was a performer and consultant for the award-winning soundtrack of the film Cold Mountain. And he joins us in the studio with some members of the Sacred Harp community. Let's introduce everybody because there's a pile of you here. <laughs> I'm Tim. That was Tim Erickson. You can say your first, and tell us where you live if you want to, too. I I live up in Amherst. (laughs) Step right up. I'm Linda Shea. I live in Greenfield. Perfect. I'm Allison Langston. I'm from Fayetteville, Arkansas. So cool. Arkansas? That's not in the 413. (laughs) I'm Angela Ruggiero Corliss, and I'm from Northampton. I'm Christine Andrews. I live in Florence. I'm Gerald. I live in Springfield. Fantastic. (laughs) All right. Well, before... uh, Let's hear what shape note and sacred harp singing sounds like, and then we'll talk a little bit about what it's all about. Where nature, all the nature, all the nature, all the nature. 
That's awesome. <laughs> this Saturday and Sunday for free at the Northampton Center for the Arts at 33 Holly, the Western Massachusetts Sacred Harp Convention. And joining us is Tim Erickson and members of the community of Sacred Harp singers uh, in our region. Tell us, for those who don't know, what is shape note singing or sacred heart singing? Is there a difference between those two uh, things? That's, that's a good question. I think there are a couple of things to point out. A couple of uh, intersecting streams of history and, and uh, cultural practice. So the sacred harp refers to this book that you can't see if you're listening on the radio. But we can describe it. But to you can you. describe it. It's, it's about a, it's, an eight and a half by eleven book. It's bound on the uh, shorter side. It's got a, a maroon cover. It's one of these oblong books. The old the old singing books are all oblong. Now I'm showing an 1801 book published in Northampton that you also cannot see on yeah, the radio. Yeah, we have to talk but about that in a second. The sacred harp is a thoroughly um, deep Southern tradition that is kind of lent to us by the uh, enthusiasm and generosity of the people who grew up doing it. Um, this book was first published in 1844. It's, uh, the most recent edition is 1991, but there's currently a new edition being made uh, coming out in the next couple of years. So, uh, but many of the songs that it contains, the, the older songs in the book are mostly of New England origin, some of them from right here in the, in the valley. Some of them will sing you a minute, uh, one from uh, Springfield, Massachusetts. So about this, this one that's from the 1800s, and from Northampton? Yeah, the uh, music publishing was a big thing in, in Northampton. Northampton was the home of the second uh, musical magazine in America. It was called the American Musical Magazine. Oh, creative you didn't, clever name. You didn't have to try hard in those days because there weren't a lot. You didn't have a lot of competition. The first one was also called the American Musical Magazine. <laughs> but it was published down in New Haven. So uh, by, by the guy that we just sang that song, oh. Daniel Reed, was involved with that. So tell me, Tim, a lot of people might know you from your work with the uh, Cordelia's Dad, which people think of as a rock band that has some more uh, uh, old-timey, for lack of a better word, instrumentation with it. But what you're an ethnomusicologist as well. Tell me about where, uh, where you got interested in this type of music that spans the generations but really comes from a, a distant time. Yeah, well, I like a lot of different kinds of music, and I think I heard, the, I heard Sacred Harp first as a kind of discrete category as a teenager, just on records the same way I was listening to, you know, Black Flag and, and uh, um, George Crumb or whatever, uh, and thought it was interesting. And then over time, just uh, got to where uh, some friends and I wanted to sing it together, and pretty soon didn't really have any friends who didn't sing. <laughs> well, I'm interested in uh, getting to know the group that you brought here. This, there will be a lot more uh, from, your, from your entourage in Western Mass. Yeah, well, it's it's you know it's just a, it's a thing that people do all over the place, and uh, there's no uh, you know auditions or membership or whatever. People just show up um, these days. There we do have um, some COVID you know protocol stuff in place, but other than that, it's a, all are welcome and no training necessary. Well, let's go down the row here and see uh, what your name, reintroduce yourself, and where you're from, and tell us why uh, you got interested in this type of singing. Get a little bit close to that mic. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, my name's Gerald. I'm from Springfield. Uh, I got interested because, um, yeah, growing up in Springfield, there's a lot of really talented singers just everywhere, all the time. And I didn't have that kind of talent, but still enjoying singing. Uh, at, at one point in time, I was uh, hanging out with one of my friends through experimental music, and she was taking one of Tim's classes. And she was like, oh, Gerald, there's this thing. You'll like it. You should do this. <laughs> Come do this thing. I'm like, I don't know what that is, but yeah. And uh, yeah, I've been doing it off and on ever since. Those are the best friends. Yeah, yeah. you're involved in things you wouldn't otherwise do. And and you know the the people involved in this are coming from all over the 
the place, you know, doctors and lawyers and farmers and uh, and trans icons and um, uh, Gerald uh, being a, a stone worker, artist, uh, experimental musician, uh, Chinese herbalist. I don't know. It's uh, <laughs> kind of and holding down the base. It's kind of we're tonight. trying to get you know trying to spread the the spread the love. Yeah, let's hear from the next person. I'm Linda. I've been singing since uh, 1999, so over 20 years. Um, and similarly, I was, uh, I've just always loved singing, and I was singing in an all-women's a cappella group, and one of the members also sang uh, Sacred Harp, and there was a singing school happening, and she said, you know, it's going to be every Tuesday night we sing, and I was like, that would be another night of singing uh, every week, and that sounds awesome. And then, you know, when I heard it for the first time, it was just, uh, you know, I'd never known that it existed, that, you know, people were just going to come and just sing in this particular raw, um, you know, unrestrained way uh, that was very appealing to me. So it was like I found, I found my tribe. Well, let's talk to the person from Arkansas who's come to this Western Mass Sacred Harp Convention happening this weekend in Northampton. Yeah, so I am here. um, What's your name again? Sorry. Sorry. um, Allison Langston. I'm from Fayetteville, Arkansas. Welcome, welcome. Well, thank you. Um, (laughs) So I'm a pretty new um, Sacred Harp singer. Um, Cold Mountain was my first introduction to it, but didn't really get into it until actually pandemic times. I was looking for um, community and connection and a cathartic musical experience with other people and found Sacred Harp and uh, certainly did find community and uh, it's wonderful. I'm so happy to be here. That's so. great. Next. Oh, they don't want to go. Okay, you don't have to go. We're not <laughs> going to pressure you. You don't have to tell your story. I'm, I'm Christine and I also knew about Sacred Harp music peripherally through Tim. I was in bands in college and uh, my band opened for his band a couple times. So, um, Knew Shamelessly about it. plug your band. Knew about that. Uh, <laughs> irrelevant today, but knew knew, <laughs> knew about it uh, per- peripherally through through Tim, and then finally one day made my way to the convention, um, and it was at the old Northampton Center for the Arts on South Street. You know, the windows are open in March, and you could hear the sound pouring out of the building. And um, I went in, and the tables are just groaning with food, and there's dozens of cakes, and there's this enormous sound of <laughs> 400 people <laughs> singing with no audience, just 400 people singing. Um, it's the way the sound hits the cake. That's the whole package. I liked and uh, started going every Tuesday. Well, should we hear another song from Tim Erickson and these Western Mass Sacred Harp singers? There's the Western Mass Sacred Harp Convention this Saturday and Sunday at the Northampton Center for the Arts at 33 Holly. It's free and you can even come sing. You're all welcome. Just come sing. Yeah, sure. Uh, Here's a song by Springfield native Amsey Chapin, 1812.
hear more of that and sing along with that this weekend at Northampton Center for the Arts at 33 Holly, the Western Massachusetts Sacred Harp Convention this Saturday and Sunday. Speaking of full disclosure, I'm pretty sure that the drummer for my band, X Temper, is going to be there. She, this she'll weekend. be there. She's yeah. staying in my, uh, in my house. <laughs> <laughs> I know. She makes us stop rehearsal early so she can go and sing, which is. No, I'm not blaming you. I'm not blaming you. Um, the subject matter of these songs is primarily liturgical, yes? Yeah, it's sacred, overwhelmingly sacred uh, Christian music. Um, and from a couple of different streams of thought, and the the practice is uh, social singing from the from the early days by design, uh, social singing um, of sacred music. And you'll be teaching people how to sing this music if they come to the convention this nope. weekend. Ah! But but you can <laughs> but if you sit next to somebody, they'll show you. That's, because it's notated differently than traditional music, even if you can read sheet music. Yeah, right? it's regular old music, but it's got different uh, note heads. Different shape note heads, hence the term shape notes, and they correspond with the old, what was called, it still is called the British solfege system. So before Do, Re, Mi, Fa, Sol, La, Ti, Do, and Julie Andrews and all that, uh, people around here, uh, within sort of uh, sphere of British influence, whether they were uh, European, African, Native uh, background, uh, the way people learned to sing the scale was Fa, Sol, La, Fa, Sol, La, Mi, Fa. So the shapes correspond with that, and that's what we do every time before we sing the words. Hence, shape, note, singing. Step right up to that uh, microphone there. And it's, it's also fine for people to go and not sing. Some people like, like I didn't sing for like the first few years. And then suddenly <laughs> wanted I like, to so bad. somebody caught me singing. <laughs> I didn't realize I knew the songs and then it was just kind of, you know, I was just in it. So it's not, you know, listening is listening is part of the tradition too. So well, in, the, in the two minutes we have left, you know, Khalees mentioned that there is this liturgical religious nature to this. I'm imagining you might not be as devout as the people that uh, wrote these songs back then. Is there something that connects with you spiritually in some way with the music? Anybody want to share, you know, their own personal spiritual connection with this? Yeah. Um, you know. Uh, and remind us your name again. Linda. Linda Shea. It really runs the gamut. I mean, there are people who sing who are atheists. There are people who sing who are devout Christian. Um, for me, you know, I started out Christian and I really, um, I resonate with the words really because I, uh, because that is my background, and also just because of the messages within the songs, it's very much life and death, primarily death. You know, <laughs> it's just so if you're into goth. It's or, uh... very, it's very intense. You know, it's it, it, there's no there's no shying away from the mm. struggles of life and the pain of life and death. Um, so it really helps to get at those you know deep hard to reach places, you know, it just, it gets right in there. Which a, a large group of people singing, I, I feel always does. There's something about yeah. like the connected voices, like lifting up in that much volume that really keys into it that. It really does. Even it's when really Keith Lockhart intense. was talking about the orchestra playing, when you hear all those instruments playing at the same time, reverberating in an analog way through your human body, mm. it's the same thing as I'm imagining as the sacred heart. Yeah, and this is Christine, and you probably noticed that we sang the shapes before we sang the words, which always sounds odd, but um, every once in a while, I'll sing through the shapes and forget that there is an actual song to sing, because it's so, <laughs> the tunes themselves and the harmony and the experience of singing it with so many people is so moving that um, the music itself is really satisfying, even if the, um, you know, religious... Uh, aspect of it doesn't doesn't connect with you. And my college band was Flower Thief. Okay, good. Yeah, I got the shameless plug in there. Well, you can hear more Western Massachusetts Sacred Harp singing this weekend at 33 Holly, Northampton Center for the Arts. Tim Erickson and your Sacred Harp singers, thank you so much. 
Tomorrow on the show, on the fabulous 4 on 3, Andre Strong Bear Hart Gaines Jr. bringing his nipmuck tradition to the Shea as part of the Smithsonian Crossroads exhibit this weekend. He'll be our guest tomorrow. Kimaya Diggs performing live in studio as a preview of her album release event at the Drake on Saturday. And come taste wine with us. We'll talk to Benson and Bruce from Provisions in the Wine Thunderdome, and you can come to the NEPM wine tasting tomorrow at MGM and save 15% if you enter Fab 413 Wine when you get your tickets Find the code on our podcast page and support this public radio station. Thanks to our director, Tony Dunn. Our engineer, Betsy Cut the Cordis. Our technical team is Kara Bart and Punk Rock Dubay. Musical thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, the Jay Giles Band, Keith Lockhart and the Boston Pops, and Cordelia's dad. He's Monty Belmonte. I'm Khalees Smith. You Wait. sure aren't. See you tomorrow <laughs> in the fabulous 413.